This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One new piece that might be of interest to Dig listeners is Richard Beck's Notes on Losing, out now in the magazine's brand new issue. In the piece, Beck, who has been writing about U.S. imperialism and the war on terror for nearly a decade, takes a searing look at American self-delusion about the war in Afghanistan. Surveying the many failures of the United States military presence in Afghanistan, from its inception to its media coverage in recent months, Beck argues that the success of the American left depends on a vital and comprehensive foreign policy. Quote, a movement that cannot connect American militarism to domestic wealth inequality has no chance of success. Dig listeners can take 25% off a yearly print subscription to N Plus One, 25% off at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, one word, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 16 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction for less than $3 a month. That's a good deal, and that's at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A far-right lunatic clown of a president threatening violence against political enemies, spewing racist and sexist commentary that conservatives once had the manners to camouflage with innuendo in embracing brutal law and order repression while denying global warming and threatening to declare election results invalid should they declare him the loser. I'm talking about far-right populist Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, who, after his shocking 2018 victory, became, among all the world's various far-right leaders, our former American president's most convincing doppelganger. Bolsonaro has presided over one of the world's highest COVID death tolls and struggles to transform his presidency into a far-right political juggernaut bigger than his erratic personality. And thankfully, Lula, the former president from the Workers' Party, or PT, is currently polling well ahead for the 2022 elections. Bolsonaro came to power in the first place because of Lava Jato, a politically motivated anti-corruption investigation carried out by a staunchly anti-PT judiciary, which led to the 2016 soft coup impeachment of Lula's PT predecessor president Dilma Rousseff and to Lula's imprisonment. Today, Lula is free and appears poised to win. Sergio Moro, the judge who led Lava Jato, briefly served as Bolsonaro's justice minister before stepping down and is now preparing his own probably ill-fated run for the presidency. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro remains surrounded by top military brass and continues to be extremely popular among the cop and soldier rank and file. His economic agenda remains delegated to the hardcore neoliberal minister Paulo Guedes, and agribusiness elites have free reign to burn record acreage of the Amazon rainforest. Fortunately, Bolsonaro's reign might end next year. 
But undoing the conditions that led to Bolsonaro's rise, the gaping inequality and poverty, the rampant civilian and police violence, the agribusiness lords of the countryside who are burning the Amazon and murdering land defenders, undoing all of that will take a lot more than returning Lula to power. It will require not only winning the presidency, but also something much bigger, fundamentally transforming Brazilian social and economic relations. Looking back, given the compromises that the left in power has felt it necessary to strike, not only in the case of the PT, but throughout Latin America's Pink Tide period, that is no small task. This and more is what I'm discussing today with sociologist Sabrina Fernandez and historian Andre Pagliarini. But before we get started, have you been reading The Dig's excellent sort of new newsletter? Check it out now at thedigradio.com slash newsletter. The best way to read our newsletter, however, is to receive it directly in your email inbox. And the way that that happens is by supporting The Dig with a contribution at patreon.com slash The Dig. We put out The Dig free to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. But we can only do that because those of you listening who can afford to contribute do so. And so if you really like The Dig, and not to brag, but I know many of you do, and you can also afford to contribute, say, $5 a month, please take a quick moment to make that contribution. All of those contributions really do add up to making this show possible. We get some ad money, but it is really the support of listeners that makes this possible. And what's more, not only do you get a newsletter if you contribute any amount at all, if you contribute $10 or more, we have books, tote bags, and mugs to send you in the mail. If you've been meaning to contribute for a while, or if you've been semi-guiltily tuning out my appeals for a while, just hit pause now and make a modest contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, I conducted this interview before Thanksgiving in two big things relevant to topics we discuss in this interview have happened since then. First, Bolsonaro, who has not built his own party while in power, but does need to be a member of a party to run for re-election, just joined the Liberal Party, or PL. Brazil has dozens of minor parties, so I asked Andre Pagliarini to describe the PL for me. He wrote, quote, PL is a small, soulless, reactionary vessel that doesn't have a particularly strong identity. It's just another of these conservative parties that just sort of exist to negotiate, read, extort, and blackmail whoever happens to be in power. Okay. In addition, the Senate just approved Bolsonaro's Supreme Court pick, Andre Mendonca. Pagliarini writes, quote, In 2018, Bolsonaro promised to name a, quote, terribly evangelical justice to the top court. And, well, he just delivered. Okay, here's Andre Pagliarini and Sabrina Fernandez. Andre Pagliarini is a professor of history at Hampton Sydney College and is preparing a book manuscript on Brazilian nationalism in the 20th century. He has written frequently about Brazil for the New Republic, Jacobin, and The Guardian. Sabrina Fernandez is a Brazilian sociologist and a postdoctoral fellow with the IRGAC at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. She is a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine and produces the political education project Tese Onse. I'll link to Tese Onse's YouTube page in the show notes. It's a really excellent left-wing channel, hugely popular in Brazil. And while it is in Portuguese, 
all of at least the recent videos have English subtitles. And one thing I tend to note when I'm doing a show about a country that speaks something other than English or Spanish, apologies for messing up Portuguese pronunciations. I've probably already messed up a few already. Andre Pellerini and Sabrina Fernandez, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me, Daniel, and so good to be here with Andrea, finally. It's a real pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks. Let's start with right now. Bolsonaro's presidency was made possible by Lula's imprisonment, which was the result of this politically motivated anti-corruption investigation called Lava Jato that sought to oust the PT from power. Now, Lula is free and polling way in the lead for next year's presidential election. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro's ratings are in the toilet. What has changed since 2018? Where to begin? <laughs> well, a lot of things have changed, uh, both the fact that uh, Lava Jato really fell in this, like, it's not credible anymore, the, the whole investigation, even uh, Moro, the, the judge that was involved in the process of uh, persecuting Lula, uh, he became a justice minister for the Bolsonaro government, but they, that also fell apart. Uh, he's trying to become a candidate uh, for next year as well. So Lula is fully back on the picture, but also the Bolsonaro government really didn't deliver on a lot of its promises. It was um, a lot of empty promises anyway, but even in the sense of what he promised the financial markets in terms of privatization, that's not going well. So part of the capitalist class in Brazil is disappointed with Bolsonaro, but obviously I think we need to highlight the handling of the pandemic here. The handling of the pandemic was a complete disaster in the sense that even people who supported Bolsonaro before having, you know, over 600,000 people dead, the lack of vaccines right at the beginning, the denialism connected to vaccines and other like really terrible uh, management of, of like public services in general, talking about environmental things. And we could even talk about the corruption scandals connected to the Bolsonaro family. So a lot of people who perhaps went with Bolsonaro under this idea that, well, he's, he's anti-systemic in a way, so we might as well try this guy here, and he's saying that he's going to fight corruption. And then it became even more obvious than before that his family is involved in a lot of corruption schemes and militias as well. Andre? I would add this idea that Bolsonaro really has not grown uh, in the position at all. I know a lot, I mean, a little bit anecdotally, but I know a lot of people who voted for him you know, knowing that he was a legislative backbencher, knowing that he had never really distinguished himself for any kind of progressive, not even progressive, but any kind of agenda, uh, palpable agenda, just sort of reaction. But they thought maybe given the chance, surrounded himself with good ministers, you know, someone like Moro, I'm saying for this electorate, that he might grow in the position. He might show himself, he might surprise us, given that the alternative, PT, the Workers' Party, we know so maybe he might surprise us a little bit. And I, you know, I think we have to be careful about comparisons, but a little bit like how some people in the, in the U.S. held their nose and voted for Trump because, you know, we know what the Clintons are. We know what this Democratic Party is like. Might as well give this guy a shot. And then you had a number of those Trump voters swing back to Biden. So I think part of what we're seeing with Lula's rise is that, yeah, Bo Bolsonaro is not going to surprise us pleasantly. 
if anything, it's even worse than we, than we could have imagined. Of course, the left and progressives and the anti-Bolsonaro forces said, this is exactly who this guy is. This, he's always been this. There is no surprise. And so I think what we're seeing a little bit too, in addition to everything Sabrina just said, is this sense that now he is a known quantity and it's, a, it's very, very bad. Recently, Bolsonaro convened these mass protests attacking, in particular, the judiciary for investigating him. And beforehand, a lot of people were concerned that the protests could be a dry run for a coup attempt. And there were a lot of comparisons to January 6th in the U.S., which provokes a much broader debate on the U.S. left over what January 6th meant. But I'll put that aside for the moment. But in Brazil, the turnout, it wasn't small, but it ended up being many, many, many fewer than the millions Bolsonaro had promised. What were the protests intended to accomplish and what what actually happened? It was underwhelming in the sense that they mobilized a lot of resources for it. So there was a lot, a lot of money from like these capitalist partners from Bolsonaro and like his entire network was on it. Like we, ne- we need to consider that the, the online network for Bolsonarismo is really strong. Uh, it's really embedded in all of these fake news schemes and trying to make sure that People really get fed these narratives that come out of Bolsonaro. And, well, he really did expect a lot more. It was enough, I guess, to show that it's not completely irrelevant. So I I had a feeling that some parts of the left were thinking, yeah, no, Bolsonaro is a goner. Like, he's not that much of of a challenge anymore. And I absolutely disagree with that. There's, like, a lot to happen between now and, and the elections next year anyway. But we, we need to understand that, yeah, perhaps there was a little bit of a dry run. Per, not, we might not be for something like after the election, but just displaying of power and this dynamic that Bolsonaro had been entertaining with the judiciary for a while now, trying to intervene, having problems with particular ministers in the Supreme Court because, you know, they're investigating corruption and they're getting in the way of some of his dealings. So that was quite strong. And I think this is quite connected to these things that, like, we've been dealing with, like, since the beginning of the year, actually, like, Bolsonaro trying to, like, get the Air Force to fly these fighter jets and, like, blow up the windows of the Supreme Court and things like that. So there's, like, this level of absurd that's always surrounding the Bolsonaro camp, but he wasn't able to actually like tip tip things in his favor uh, on that occasion, right? So that was on September 7th, which is uh, Brazil's um, Independence Day, though independence is quite relative here. Yeah, so here's the way I see it. Uh, Bolsonaro was clearly upset with the Supreme Court because, among other things, many factors Sabrina listed, but they, they refuse, or one minister refused to basically shield his son from investigation. And, you know, the one consistent thing in Bolsonaro's career, and certainly as president, is, you know, don't mess with his family. And so he's furious with the Supreme Court about that. Now, of course, he's going to have all kinds of other justifications that they're blocking our agenda. But really, there's, there, are, there are kind of personal and personal material issues at stake. And so part of the, the movement of September 7th was to put the Supreme Court in check. This was the the hope that there'd be people in the street to intimidate the Supreme Court. The reason that I think it it was underwhelming, or at least part of it, was the fact that going back to Sabrina's first answer about the pandemic, I mean, it's just so hard to follow what to be angry about if you're a Bolsonaro supporter this time. Why is he mad at the Supreme Court again? What is it that they're blocking? What's the drama? His son? You know, so I, I think that part of the reason it was underwhelming was because a lot of people... They don't see his personal squabble with individual Supreme Court ministers 
as that urgent, as you know, reason enough to take to the streets. Now, it is notable just how many there were in the middle of a pandemic. Like, it was not nothing. It was a lot of people. But I think part of what we saw on September 7th was this either the beginning of something worse, a dry run, or alternatively, maybe the first sign of like a disconnect between Bolsonaro and his ability to mobilize his base around his own personal interests. People just weren't invested, I think, in that dispute. And also divide, a divide within, they're like, there's a divide within the base as well, right? There are people like who support Bolsonaro and they will vote for him again next year, but they're not willing to go to any other lengths to support Bolsonaro, right? I'm not going to go to the streets and try to do all of these things. The guy's already in power, you know, next year, maybe campaigning, different situation. We like, we need to make sure that Lula doesn't come back. They might have different reasonings, but not everyone is going to go like to the streets and like chant things in favor of like the AI5, you know, like anti-democratic act from the dictatorship and things like that. So like there are different levels of supporters within the loyal base And then there are the others who are just, you know, voters who might vote for Bolsonaro if they really hate Lula or who might not vote for Bolsonaro if there are other alternatives. And so that's still yet to be decided. Sabrina, how do you think through this question of whether Bolsonaro is weak or whether he's a major threat or maybe is he a threat because of the ways in which he is weak? He's a threat because he's the president of Brazil and he shouldn't be there. And so I think that's the the main thing for us to understand. That guy should never have been in power in the first place. So as long as he's there, he's a major threat to life in the country. And if we consider geopolitical issues and ecological issues to life on the planet. So Bolsonaro has to be stopped in any way. The difference here is that the way that we fight him is going to vary according to where he's a little weaker or a little stronger, right? And this has to do with some of these partnerships, some of his his alliances, really. Like, well, what sustains Bolsonaro most of all is the economic alliances, I believe. That's why Paulo Guedes is the minister of, like, the minister of the economy, and he's absolutely untouched. He hasn't really delivered on everything that he has promised the Brazilian capitalist class, but he's untouched. But the, the rest of the ministry, like we've seen a lot of changes in ministers here and there, according as well, and Andre is absolutely right here, according to um, whether people get along or not with Bolsonaro's sons. So we do need to understand like Bolsonaro is the president, but there's like it's a family business. Like they are running it this way. So like they're traveling everywhere and they're spending like money on like this presidential card that we don't have access to it. There's some like censorship like involved in like, you know, trying to figure out like how many times his sons were in the in the presidential office. And like we, we don't have access to that kind of information. So it, but it, I do believe this varies a lot regarding these alliances, but he shouldn't be underestimated. The, one of the reasons that he's in power right now is because we under, underestimated him a lot, saying that, no, like the, the traditional right, they're not going to go with a guy like this. But they, they figured out that to go with a guy like that was the easiest way to get rid of, of the left, even the moderate left. And then the traditional right now is struggling to ensure that, well, after Bolsonaro, we're going to fill, fill in the, those shoes. But it's a struggle because Bolsonaro is still stronger than what the traditional uh, right thought, the, uh, thought that he would be. Andre? Yeah, I think this is one of the crucial questions going in, into the election because there's a lot of coverage already, I think, that looks at this 
the race that's shaping up, and it's not exclusively, but it's led by Lula and Bolsonaro. And they say, well, you know, Lula is obviously strong in the in the polls, but he is divisive. But as of now, and looking ahead, as my colleague and uh, friend Brent, Ben Bradlow always says, Lula, if you look at the polls, is not really divisive right now. And I know we'll probably we'll probably get to Lula in a minute, but just to say that right now, before things have really started, Lula is you know reaching this high point in the polls, and Bolsonaro is really low in the polls, but. One real concern is that as we get closer to the election, some of those same dynamics and imperatives that helped propel Bolsonaro in the first place in 2018, namely this really fierce uh, anti-PT feeling, anti-PTism with a strong anti-PT feeling, if that can be rekindled. And that, I think, will be Bolsonaro's main task. It'll be Sergio Moro, who is the, the, the Lava Jato judge, who is looking like he's going to run for president as well. There is going to be this onslaught of anti-PTista sentiment that could well fortify Bolsonaro. So I, you know, I tend to think he looks pretty weak right now because I don't think it's easier, I think, in 2018, if you're Bolsonaro, to fan these flames and just like, you know, let everything burn and everything's bad and everything's, you know, going to hell versus maintaining that uh, in 2022. So I, you know, I, I, I tend to be hopeful about his defeat. Then again, we can't, I think, discount this deep well of antipetismo that I worry Bolsonaro will be able to tap into again. The problem with antipetismo as well is that the left doesn't know how to handle it. So like the Workers' Party doesn't know how to handle it because sometimes the support base mistakes any sort of criticism, constructive criticism, things that would make things better as, you know, all antipetismo, so, you know, you're the enemy. And at the same time, we do know that portions of the left in trying to like make leftist opposition to the PT, they, they find it easier to just like, claim that the PT is right-wing or try to really rewrite the history, like tell the history of the Workers' Party and Lula in a way that sometimes I would say it's a, even a little bit dishonest, right? So like taking away some of the gains and just like placing everything under the same the same cover that the right has used for a really long time, like claiming that, wow, the Workers' Party is so corrupt and things like that and not really doing like a proper analysis of the problem of corruption within Brazilian society and the extra challenges uh, connected to how the PT has a lot of fighting within the ranks of the party over class conciliation, lulism, and like how to govern, how to occupy certain spaces, how to share spaces with the rest of the left. So it's a lot more complex. And the fact that the left doesn't really know how to handle antipetismo makes it even more powerful. So that should only does help the right in the end. I agree. And just to add, I mean, it, it's alarming. It should be a red flag, not in the good sense, an alarming red flag <laughs> that after after almost four years, the Workers' Party hasn't really figured out what to say about the stuff that we know is coming. The antipetismo, the corruption talk. And we know this stuff is coming and there does not seem to be a clear response. And that, yeah, I agree with Sabrina. That, that's alarming. We started sort of talking about this, alluding to this dynamic between the judiciary and Bolsonaro, where you had the protests targeting the judiciary, but the judiciary, of course, through Lava Jato, it was the judiciary that laid the groundwork for Bolsonaro's rise. So, and this is something that reminds me a lot about dynamics, political dynamics that emerged under under Trump here in the U.S. How has this dynamic in Brazil played out that pits institutional legal authority on the one hand against Bolsonaro's authoritarianism on the other, given that it's that very institutional legal authority that seemingly would have long since discredited itself 
as any sort of defender of democracy, given its complicity in paving the rise of none other than Jair Bolsonaro. And has the PT been able to put forward a more substantive, more resonant left-wing critique of Bolsonarismo that extends beyond these sort of institutionalist attacks on Bolsonaro's illiberalism? Uh, Sure. So I guess the first thing I would say is that it's relatively recent that Brazilians are so invested in the Supreme Court, that they know the names of Supreme Court justices. I mean, I, I wrote a piece dating this back really in its sort of modern incarnation to the Mesalon scandal under Lula's first time in office where there was basically a vote buying scandal in Congress and the it went to the Supreme Court. And this is one of those major cases of media seizing on it. And every one of the Supreme Court justices became household names. And the the dilemma that I've, I've argued is that on one hand, you know, you have people rooting for one side or other in this debate. You have the Bolsonaristas who hate the Supreme Court. They hate, you know, individual justices, Moraes and others. But yet they don't really know or understand how the Supreme Court really works or how it takes up cases or who the, you know, the relator is, who is in charge of this or that case. So there's this real superficial level at which this political debate is happening, I think, between the court and Bolsonaro. And it's sort of dressed up, I think, as institutional, institutional combat and in a sense, it is. But it's also, I think, if you're a regular sort of working class person, it's just these big egos who, are, who aren't really, you know, reflecting popular will or popular priorities in any way. So to your second point about whether the PT is articulating a more kind of substantive leftist critique of Bolsonarismo, I'm not sure that it is. I mean, I think what we're seeing is an attempt by Lula, and it's, it's working. Like, don't get me wrong. I think it's urgently important but to reclaim a kind of notion of normalcy, of institutional normalcy, as if normal was fine, as if normal was good, as if normal was working for most Brazilians, uh, when it really wasn't. So this, I think, is the debate that Lula and the PT have to, you know, face head on going into next year is, is going back to normal enough or will preventing future Bolsonaro's require a deeper reconsideration of these institutions? Sabrina? I think this is also connected to like a larger dispute over neutrality. So like for a really long time, there was this idea that, you know, the Supreme Court was neutral and like more technical, like and just like looking to the laws and because of it, it could be trusted. And I think this is like one of the many reasons why the Lava Jato investigation you know, got a lot of support, even within leftist ranks, because, wow, they're investigating things that people hadn't investigated in a while. And it's important because it's not as political as the executive or the legislative. So that was around. And it's still hard for us to sometimes uh, have proper conversations around this, you know, and noticing that, well, um, the judiciary in Brazil is like, you know, still very much about like uh, older white men from traditional families uh, with traditional values. And even under the PT, like they appointed uh, people to the court like that we should question that. So they're like the same debate around what is like, what is the Supreme Court for? And what is the judiciary for? And some of these approaches uh, during this crisis of representation in Brazil that be- became more obvious after the mass protests of June 2013, but they had been around, it had been a problem since before, this uh, belief that, well, politicians are all the same and political parties are all the same and they're all thieves and, 
that's basically like how politics works. All of that has have been part of the of like the daily vernacular of Brazilians anyway. But ever since 2013, that became a little more obvious. And some people kind of just decided that, well, I'm going to place my faith in the judiciary. Because if the political party system is rotten, at least, well, there are these judges and they study it and they're supposed to apply the law. And this belief in the law, law and order being something so powerful. And sometimes the left falls prey to this. And this is so dangerous because the law is so bourgeois. It's so oppressive. And like the legal system in Brazil, it's about incarcerating, you know, like black youth. It is about segregation. So it, we have to be quite careful when we just like think that, well, the politicians are not really playing fair. So we're just going to focus on the judiciary here and just expect that, for example, the judiciary will save us. If Bolsonaro is trying to do something that is wrong, now we all like turn to the Supreme Court and see how they're going to put Bolsonaro back in his place. But it could come a time where the Supreme Court thinks, yeah, but it, like we still prefer Bolsonaro than some leftist alternative, especially if we push it in, more, in a more radical direction. They're, they're not going to let us go in a more radical direction. So we have to be quite careful when we're um, acknowledging the role of the Supreme Court in this dispute with Bolsonaro, but not place faith or like not really build up the image of the Supreme Court as something that we should look up to and they're fair because it, they're not fair. Well, well, I think one example of exactly what Sabrina is, is, is talking about is Sergio Moro himself. I mean, Sergio Moro, uh, it should be noted, in the Lava Jato investigation, the protagonist in terms of the judiciary was not the Supreme Court for most of it. It was Moro himself who was, I think it's like the equivalent of a circuit court judge. He wasn't the highest level of which Lula's case could go, as it were. But he became the face of this courageous you know, judiciary that, wasn't, that was bucking the system for the first time. And it was a kind of an open secret that part of the reason, I mean, there are several, I'm sure, but part of the reason Moro decided to join the Bolsonaro administration was that they had a tacit agreement that he would be nominated to the, to the Supreme Court. So A, on one hand, it's this idea of like, it's a game of egos and it's always, this, as Sabrina said, it's always the same kind of person, generally speaking, that gets nominated. Uh, it's people like Moro. But on the other hand, one maybe positive legacy, if we can find a silver lining of this whole judicial experience, is that Moro's persecution of Lula raised a lot of awareness, I think, among the left that we need to ta tackle a politicized judiciary as well, that it's not neutral. Lawfare. Lawfare, right, exactly. And so... You want hopes that this critique gets built out a little more, because right now I do think it's very much restricted to Lula and Lula's case. And they went after Lula because he's Lula. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Brazilians who are incarcerated who you know, did not obviously get the exposure of a Lula, did not obviously get the, the public displays of support, but who are also victims of a, of a judiciary system that is callous and indifferent to the vast majority of Brazilians. Or were incarcerated under Lula, right? And like, and that, that calls into question the entire politics around incarceration under the PT government. That's something that we still need to criticize because if Lula comes back, we, we need to tackle this. Like it can't be normalized just because it's not Bolsonaro anymore and, or we're afraid of the right wing coming back. Stepping back a little, how was it that Brazilian politics crystallized around anti-corruption the way that they did? Because in 2013, there were these massive protests for free transit, 
demanding better public services. In other words, a massive left-wing social movement against a left-wing government's shortcomings. But by 2015, just two years later, Brazilian politics was dominated by anti-corruption sentiment, and corruption had been popularly equated with the left in power, specifically with the PT in power. What happened between 2013 and 2015? Obviously, Lava Jato happened, but how did such a massive transformation take place in such a short time? I don't think it's that massive. Like, uh, the, like if, if we go back, we could go back 100 years and look into um, how politics in Brazil have been framed around corruption and who's stealing and who's actually like fooling the population and taking money because it has to do with the history of colonialism and like being underdeveloped and, you know, money is flowing through, through Brazil and where is it going and lives are not being that improved. Um, but before I have more thoughts on this, like, Andres, is the actual like historian here, so like maybe maybe he can give us a, a better framework. <laughs> you know, I'm curious here, Sabrina's experiences too about uh, the the World Cup and the Olympics protests because I know I followed her. She was, you know, she was there at the front lines for all of that. But just from a historical, you know, perspective, I think in the long history of the of, of the 20th century, what happened in 20 between 2013 and then up until 2018, this sort of cycle that that we saw was really not exceptional. And in fact, there were moments. In, in the middle of it where it felt incredibly instructive, right, for uh, a generation that was not around for 64, uh, 1964 when the coup happened, of how this discourse builds on itself of official incompetence, corruption, the country headed in the wrong direction, these kind of amorphous forces of discontent and how they get weaponized. I mean, it was very much a similar case in 1964 when the basic question of, who is going to benefit from this co- from this political moment, from this conjuncture, from this you know moment? In 1964, it was clear that there was an ascendant coalition on the left and the center left that looked like it was gaining the upper hand. And I think one of the one of the factors that we saw post 2013 and especially after 2014, when when Dilma squeaks through a re-election victory, is that. We, the you know, the the, the right wing coalition, the capitalists, and and this large right wing segment of, of, of Brazilian population is having a hell of a time trying to beat these guys at the polls. That they, the PT and, and the left and this coalition, is really on to a winning formula that is very hard uh, uh, to beat. And so I think this idea of an electoral frustration on the part of Brazilian conservatives and the right, combined with this opportunistic reading of the current situation, that of, of an opening here. And I think that that's happened, you know, several cases throughout the 20th century. I mean, you could argue that uh, 1930, which brought Getulio Vargas uh, and the provisional government into power, was a similar kind of reading of the situation of an opening, a moment of fragility, and a turning point uh, a moment. So, you know, I'm curious to see what our friend Benjamin Fogel is working on this. He has a, a project coming out about the, the long history of corruption in 20th century Brazil, but it's really in that history, the past five, six, seven years are not exceptional. Yeah, like I was about to mention Ben as well, because like his work has been like pretty interesting in that sense, because what, what we would have in the past years is perhaps a different dynamic, right? So like the Internet is definitely a part of this. And like how you mobilize this online, the fake news around it, you know, like all sorts of fake news, like saying that like the son of Lula 
was the owner of like this major like agribusiness meat industry in Brazil, JBS. So like there's all of these things and that, that was definitely a huge part of it. But it's also part of the dynamic of how the left doesn't know how to properly fight these narratives around corruption because the, the press really, really grilled into it and like made sure that people associated, you know, corruption with, with the PT and the rest of the left in general. And that could have like other anti-communist sentiment as well. Like, you know, they don't know how to handle things and manage things. And the, so that's why they take things. So that's there. But obviously it has to do like with, you know, this larger critique that has to be made by the left. And like we, we've been failing at this for a really long time. And so, like, Bolsonaro is in power and Bolsonaro is much more associated with corruption now. And even so, like, even though, like, Lula is free, people are still saying that Lula was the one that, like, stole the most uh, for, for the longest. So that's quite embedded into, like, the memory of a lot of Brazilians, even though you can't really trace this to, like, particular acts, like, beyond, like, Mensalão or things like that. But a lot of the things that come out, there's just like hearsay, like random hearsay that's associated with the left. And obviously, I think the matter of corruption is something that kind of appeals to everyone. So we get perhaps into the, the post politics of this is that, well, you know, you're left wing or you're right wing, but you are against corruption, right? Like you can't be pro-corruption. Like what kind of person would be pro-corruption? So it, it seems like, OK, that, that's probably what unifies us. And this was quite an important point in June 2013, because during those protests, they be they began a lot more class-based, and as they became more massive, the message got diluted. Uh, so it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't about right to the city anymore. It was about, yeah, like, we want hospitals, and we want education, but what kind of education? Like, you know, is it private, is it public? How are we going to fund these things? You know, what's going to be taught in the schools? That was out of question. That's, that wasn't being discussed. So you were getting a lot more people in, and obviously the middle class is jumping in. People who have been listening this net, to these narratives about the left being corrupt for a really long time. And with that, well, the one thing that seems to actually unify these crowds is, well, we're against corruption. And because we think that, you know, the country is in in a bad situation because of corruption. Corruption becomes the big enemy. Right. And that makes it very easy for the right to take advantage of it, because since the left hadn't done the proper base building work for anti-corruption to politicize what an anti-corruption fight actually looks like, the right wing, well, that was its territory. It had been for decades. So you could just like jump in and say, yes, corruption is the main problem. And this is what's destroying Brazil. And look at that. Let's point fingers. And that gave a huge opportunity for the right to actually like mobilize and capitalize on the crowds. And we saw this uh, again in 2014. During the World Cup protests, those were not that massive. There was a lot of demobilization even within the leftist ranks around the World Cup. But it was obviously present because, well, why were we spending this much money with like a FIFA plan and, you know, all these irregular processes around uh, the stadiums and the construction companies around it. So that was it. But the most important thing connecting like the World Cup in 2014 was the fact that the elections were in the fall, right? Like so the, the elections happening in October in Brazil and, you know, like uh, the right not accepting defeat. And they saying, well, we need to, like, we're not going to accept defeat. So Juma is not illegitimate. And they just worked on this. And a few movements like uh, NBL, the 
like that's actually sort of like connected, it's connected to Students for Liberty in the US. So it's one of these, uh, the Free Brazil movement and they actually are not doing quite well uh, that, uh, right now, but they were, they were like a major voice around that time. And talking about corruption was a main thing. And some of their disagreements right now with the Bolsonaro government, they're still about corruption because they have made corruption into one of their main, their main ban banners. Though I, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that, like, that they would just, you know, just support Bolsonaro next year anyway, because it's still like uh, liberal conservatives and they're going to play their own game. I would also add, just on top of that, something that's obvious to any leftist, which is the reactionary impulses of the middle class in the recent history and, and, and going back, you know, to the, to the 60s and beyond, I think what emerged at this moment that Sabrina describes when these movements went from being these small kind of local, you know, uh, little issues to broader mass-based movements is that the middle class engages. And I think there was an opportunity, maybe a, a, a tiny window, in which this discourse of anti-corruption, but also anti-privileges, these privileges that you know, that judges and politicians that, you know, they have so much public money that goes to their election funds, that goes to their travel, blah, 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 blah. I think there was a moment in which the left could have seized on that as a broader critique of the way capitalism plays out in Brazil and has always played out, that it's, you know, captured, the state is captured by these forces that have, you know, these organic links to, to capital. But instead, the prevailing notion, I think the right recognized that too. The right recognized the appeal and the power of, the, of these critiques as an anti-political argument that, yes, it's, it's all privilege, it's all corruption, so it's all bad. Now, eventually, we saw movements like MBL, you know, run for office and actually enter the system as if they were, you know, these, you know, upstart outsiders uh, and not the representatives of the same old interests uh, so I think that there was a moment there where that discourse, the left might have been able, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, but the left might have been able to direction that uh, in a certain way. But by then, I think, uh, and I'm not, I wonder if Sabrina agrees, I think the PT was, you know, sclerotic at that point as a party and as a government, as a governing power, that it was unable in the face of that movement to redirect or to channel that anger. It was, you know, caught flat-footed in the worst way at the worst time. I, it's also connected to the way um, the second mandate of Juma was one that she, well, she's worried about these threats and rather than trying to come up with a cohesive strategy with movements to fight these attempts of a coup, she kind of just decided, well, let's give in a little bit more, right? So having like Joaquin Levy there, you know, in like, a, a, like running the, the economic system of the country was a bad call like from the beginning, so like the energy was absolutely in the wrong place. Uh, if you think, of, like if we think about it, the Workers' Party actually only really started mobilizing against the coup, uh, you know, like in, in the last moments of, of this. It should have been like from 2014 onwards, but it was mostly like uh, by the end, like when they actually realized that Michel Temer, the, the vice president, he was all in to make sure that the coup would go forward. That's when they, they really started uh, to worry. But before that, it was really about, well, we are so good at sowing these alliances and, you know, making sure that we stay in power because we know how to ensure governability. So we'll, we'll be able to do this again. So there was a lot of uh, self-confidence 
that wasn't really justified coming from uh, June 2013, which I think also reflects some major deficits in, in like in the PT base and some of the PT intellectuals in actually comprehending how complex June 2013 was rather than just claiming, oh, it was right-wing reactionary and whatever, and the coup began there. It's, it's not just like flying from point A from point B. A lot of things happened in between, and the Workers' Party was an actor in a lot of these things that happened in between. Just to underscore one thing, you know, the 2014 campaign was incredibly hard fought between Juma and Ayasu. Ayasu Neves sincerely believed that he was going to win. And she squeaks out this victory and talk about demobilization. The economic agenda she implements is the one that she had largely ran against. Austerity. I, I mean, I remember I was in Rio shortly afterwards and you couldn't go to the archives because the uh, federal government had cut the bill to pay for the cooling, the, the air conditioning, so they couldn't pull documents because they were worried about damaging and movement. They had to keep them basically where they were. And it was just this absurd, like, penny pinching that was what she had precisely said that ISU and the PSDB would do. And, and I, yeah, that was incredibly demobilizing, I think, because what's the point? We elected her against all this, and then she uh, implements this agenda anyway. Now, one thing I think, to her credit, the, 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 I think the, the official PT history would, would praise Juma for the way that she refused to give in to Eduardo Cunha, who was the, um, the Speaker of the House at the time, who demanded, in exchange for blocking impeachment proceedings, basically protection from a shielding from, from uh, official trials against him, and Juma refused to negotiate that. Now, one could see that as you know, intransigence that bordered on political malpractice, or one could see it as principled opposition. But yeah, it, I think by that point, to Sabrina's point, she had lost so much of the energy and the goodwill that had squeaked her re-election victory. Have Brazilian political subjectivities been radically altered since the PT first came to power? I think the one area where there was a serious change and which is now under threat is at the lowest end of the social pyramid. That there were, in all kinds of measurable ways, improvements in what the lowest income Brazilians could expect to consume, how they could live their lives, that tangibly and measurably improved under the Workers' Party. Now, for this sort of reactionary middle that we're discussing, I, I, I do think, and this is not an original argument, a lot of people have pointed this out, but that there was a certain degree of status anxiety, that one of the things that kept this broad urban middle cohesive as a social force was their sense that they are better than the favelados, they are better than the people who they see begging for change in the streets at the stoplight, better than the people who, you know, juggle for a few pennies at, um, at the red light. And they might hope to one day reach the heights of these, you know, economic magnates that they, everyone uh, hears about, especially those who did really well during the PT years, the, the, you know, guys like Akibachista who are reaching these heavens of, you know, uh, economic fortunes. So I think that to the extent that that bottom rung has seen their uh, economic fortunes fading and Bolsonaro most dramatically uh, has canceled the Bolsa Familia and he's, he's talking about a new transfer uh, program that will replace Bolsa Familia. But I do think there's a real sense that the bottom could fall out. And so to your question of how much has changed, I mean, Lula, I think, will campaign on restoring a lot of that progress at the bottom that he that happened under the PT. But I worry, and again, that, that they have not found a way to counter the reaction now we know is coming. It's a different world than 2003, 4, 5, 6. 
and the political forces have changed. So I don't think there is much, you know, material change. And I worry and I wonder if the PT will be able to face this new reality and to learn those lessons. And again, to not, to not argue, as I said earlier, that going back to that is enough. I mean, Lula was in Paris yesterday and he said that, well, you know, a lot of people say I was lucky when I was president, that the commodities boom and this and that. And he end with the kind of smirk saying, well, wouldn't it be nice to have someone who's lucky back in the presidency, you know, after the kind of, uh, you know, yet the last two, three, four years we've had. So I, you know, I'm a little bit worried about some of that, like mystification. Eh, it's all going to work out. Well, you know, things will be fine. Because as I say, it's a different world than the first Lula administration. And I, and I wonder if he'll be able to pull the same rabbit out of the hat. It's a different world also in the sense that uh, billionaires figured out that they can be even more billionaires under Bolsonaro. It's like they don't really need to play the Lula game of, you know, uh, we'll give you something, you give us something, and that way, you know, you have like social policies for people, and then we make money. This is the, the curse of the dependent capitalist class, like in a place like Brazil that we're so familiar with when we're talking about Latin America, right? It's not really about whether you actually have like a working class that can consume. That was really good for, for, part, of the, for part of the system, right? But the currency is so devalued right now. And this is really great for those who, you know, just want to export commodities. We have a case in Brazil of like meat being stored in containers, rather than actually being used to, to you know, like, like fulfill the desires of people to eat <laughs> because, well, they, they want to export it to China and that's all that, that, all that matters, actually. But in that sense, this really terrible situation of hunger primarily, which I think is like the biggest concern that we have in Brazil right now, this is something that Lula knows to work with. Though it worries me that we're going to wait for Lula to come back to really tackle hunger. Like a lot of people will suffer and die until then. So like hunger is not a problem for 2023 or for the elections. It's a problem for yesterday. And I wish this would be taken more seriously beyond just a few social movements who are engaging in solidarity approaches and building community kitchens and donating food. So people are trying their best uh, right now, but we should be talking about like how, how can we actually mobilize to make sure that people get, get fed right now and not just in the sense of, you know, like uh, left-wing left -wing philanthropy or something like that. People contributing to crowdfunding to make sure that uh, other people get to eat. It shouldn't be just about this. So like this is a major crisis, really. And I agree with, with Andrea on this, like, this whole point of like, <laughs> the lucky thing, because in 2018, the, the platform for the PT campaign was for Brazil ser feliz de novo, like for Brazil to be happy again. And it does seem like they're still going to run on this idea that, well, it's for Brazil to be happy again, so we, we need to bring Lula back. And like, Brazil is actually like, grieving right now. So yes, happiness would be great. But what does this happiness mean is also something of a question that we need to consider here because it's not like things were perfect back then and i'm worried about what we end up normalizing in the sense that like still keeps these same guys in power that might get rid of lula again if they want you and this is something that lula is like the best uh like most crafty politician that we've had in brazil like he knows what he's doing when he says this thing about you know lucky he knows what he's doing Uh, Lula is really, really smart, but I still think that Lula underestimates the power of the Brazilian capitalist class 
to actually like move things and you know stab him behind his back they've done so in the past and like he still underestimates it like when he goes out and he like tweets that yes the difference between between us and agribusiness is that like we want agrarian reform and they want guns to like kill people who want agrarian reform but we need to work with agribusiness like wow look at that we need to talk about antagonism here and like this uh, really big belief that he can, you know, find middle ground. This is something that might be useful to make sure that the financial market doesn't, you know, doesn't get too angry with him. And, you know, the these big guys that, that actually control the game, they'll let him get elected. But it can't be what sets the tone for the four years after that. And obviously here I'm being like, super optimistic right because like i'm talking about the actual prospects that like look at lula is going to get elected and he's going to be able to actually like first of january he's going to be there in brasilia there's not going to be a coup of sorts or anything like that but i still like i think like part of the uh, of our job is to like handle what's happening right now but also play out these different scenarios and make sure that we prepare for certain vulnerabilities and i i still believe that there's a problem with the, the Lula way of governing, like Lulismo. It just has a lot of blind spots to these vulnerabilities. Yeah, and I, I would emphasize two, looking forward to playing out exactly the, as Sabrina said, two main questions I think to be looking at right now. I mean, there's several, but two that I would point out. One very practical one in the short term is the vice president, who, what kind of person that's going to be, uh, what, what kind of signal that's going to send. Because, you know, if it's a certain, if it's a sort of right or center right person, that's meant to signal a kind of message to parts of the market and so on. Well, what happens if in two years they decide they like that guy better and the same thing happens, right? The exact same thing that happened with Juma plays out and they impeach Lula because they like the number two better. So that's one, I think, question for the medium term. Long term, though, is, again, best case scenario, Lula is able to keep everything, you know, all the balls in the air, that he is able to negotiate as he once did between these you know, antagonistic forces who want nothing more than to see the PT fail. But he's able to, to, to do that. But the lesson that we learned, I think, from the last time the PT was in office was, yeah, but Lula is going to leave the stage at some point. It can't just be that Lula's, you know, preternatural abilities as a politician, which he does have, I mean, undeniably. But are you, are you building institutions both within the party and without to raise a new generation of people who can not only rise in the party, but connect. And I'm not saying that there's a way to build that. It's not, you know, Lula emerges organically. It's not like there's a, a school, although some on the right try to have a school for, for politicians. But, I, you know, so I, I wonder about that. How much of it is Lula's ability to do what he once did? I think he probably can. But then what? Where does the Workers' Party go from there? I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print 
and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. It's often said that there are three constituencies of Bolsonarismo, beef, Bible, and bullet. And I wanted to go over each one, starting with beef, these large-scale agricultural capitalists who are undertaking the rapid deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, murdering land defenders, just total feudal-seeming nightmare. Has this constituency changed at all because of its commitment to Bolsonarismo, or are these rural elites essentially the same people they've been for a long time, committed to the same ideology and to the same order that they have been defending for decades, I don't know, centuries? Yeah, in a sense, like it's, it, it might be even odd to put the agribusiness class as a constituency and like it's the actual autocracy that's been running the country for so long, the way that, you know, Brazilian sociologist um, Florestan Fernandes talked about, right? <laughs> in a way, um, it's not like uh, every business is at the, the support base for Bolsonaro and they're with Bolsonaro. So like Bolsonaro is with them. Bolsonaro needs agribusiness to be able to govern. Bolsonaro needs agribusiness to be able to, to actually get some, some things done because they hold an enormous amount of power. And we're not talking here just about uh, like land property. We're talking also about like the financial markets and uh, the entire system around around exports and things like that. Like when we're talking about a country that's like under-industrialized like Brazil, the rural class does have a lot a lot of power and they held a lot of power under uh, Lula and Dilma as well. Like, I mean, Dilma had as her minister of agriculture, like someone who was like a direct representative of this, uh, this agribusiness ruling class. And it's, it's complicated for us to even think of, like, how can you actually have a government in Brazil that's not kind of playing along with the agribusiness unless it is absolutely aligned with a lot of popular power coming from social movements to ensure agrarian reform. So agrarian reform is something, yeah, Lula said, yeah, we're, we're for it, but where is it really? So this is part of the challenge. And for Bolsonaro, like, I knew that Bolsonaro had a huge shot like during the came like pre-campaign, the pre-campaign period, I knew he had a huge shot when he started, you know, posting these photos of meetings with members of the agribusiness class. That's when it became quite obvious to me that well, he got their support, and like Cachabreu, who was like the VP candidate uh, for Ciro Gomes, who was from agribusiness, didn't get their support. So that that really uh, showed how how like the power was really aimed at Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro is against agrarian reform. He's against land and territorial claims for indigenous and traditional communities, and you know he wants to manipulate the environment and like so these anti ecological policies are also connected to this. So yes, obviously uh, you cannot define Bolsonarismo and you cannot define what's been holding Bolsonaro in power without talking about the power of agribusiness itself. I would tie it back to one point Sabrina made earlier, which is the realization among these people that like they can get the whole cow from Bolsonaro people. Why would they settle for half 
from Lula or or you know a, a center left government that is going to try to rein in some of the worst impulses. What about the Bible constituency? Has it been the very same factors that led to the rise of Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo that has driven that have driven so many Brazilians to convert from Catholicism to evangelical Christianity? It's a it's a sea change from one of the most Catholic countries in the world not that long ago. Andrea wrote a brilliant piece on this for uh, the Jack in Brazil second issue. So like this has to do with like not just the fact that like people are going from Catholicism to be- becoming evangelical. It's not just a religious thing. It has to do with like a whole infrastructure, right? So I think part of the realization that this coalition of evangelicals, uh, evangelical churches led by these prominent larger than life figures like Silas Malafaia, uh, who I wrote about for Jacobin Brazil, is that for many years over the past, you know, oh, three decades or so, the pursuit of power and growth were the driving agendas, growth. And from their perspective, what that entailed was a, an uneasy alliance, I think, with the largest ascendant political force at the time, the Workers' Party and the broader coalition that the Workers' Party still represented, that is, of religious people uh, and making inroads in the progressive Catholic movement that, that, that the PT had long was a founding part of the, of the Workers' Party. One of the things I think we've seen in the past maybe five years or so, decade, is the realization that they no longer need to make that concession on matters of theology, for example, because this has always always been a sort of reactionary evangelical project that I would argue has been subsumed to the broader project of growth. But under Bolsonaro, like with the other capitalist forces we've discussed, that need to concede, I think, has diminished. So, you know, someone like Silas Malafaya has even, who is this large, incredibly large mega pastor, has even been talked about, for example, on the 7th of September uh, at the Sao Paulo demonstration, there were people chanting that he should be the vice president, that they should replace Moron, the current vice president, with Malafaya. And not to read too much into that, but I think it indicates the centrality, the importance of uh, evangelicals as a constituency. That's one hand. The other hand is that when it comes to actually nominating people and pursuing policies, I think if one of these constituencies, as it were, is going to be cut, it's probably the evangelicals, right? Bolsonaro promised an evangelical Supreme Court uh, minister, but with the rest of Senate, the Senate and Congress saying, mm, we, don't, we don't know about this guy, he's been willing to retreat on that. And I wonder if that's because of, you know, sort of material economic uh, imperatives. Uh, so they're important, but I wonder... Uh, how, how centrally they figure in the broader project of power that Bolsonaro represents. Yeah, the, obviously Bolsonaro gives them things, uh, like, for example, like having um, Damaris Alves as minister for like human rights for for women and like all of the intervention within indigenous communities coming from evangelicals, like the government allowing like evangelical missions within indigenous communities, communities that have been isolated. Uh, so this is really worrisome. And it's part of what sustains this, this space. But yes, it, this is also the question like, does Bolsonaro need these people to actually govern all the time? I, I don't think it's like the strongest pillar, but it's definitely uh, an important pillar to mobilize for the elections. So because, you know, he's saying that like he's pro-family and, you know, this whole things about the, the motto of having like God above everything. This is quite powerful to, you know, keep these appearances for the election. But like on the inner workings of the government, 
you're going to have influences in what affects women, in what affects, uh, you know, like oppressed populations, of course. But if Bolsonaro says no to on some of these things, he, he can still keep going. It's not like he's going to make, uh, like make it or break it as a deal. In fact, that's the whole thing. Like, Silas Malafaia uh, had been really upset about this delay on, like, appointing this minister. And it's not like they, they were able to, like, mobilize crowds to pressure Bolsonaro to make it happen, right? So, uh, in, uh, in that sense, so, like, whereas when we're talking about boy, when we're talking about agribusiness, agribusiness rules a lot of the show. When it comes to, to the, even, like, fundamentalist evangelicals, there's a lot more tension. So, like, it's, it's a give and take relationship and it changes a little bit with time but obviously this is also connected to another problem which is the fact that the left doesn't know how to handle the shift of the population towards like the evangelical faith and the fact that you know in many communities it is evangelical leaders doing the work of being there for people when they're going through difficulties it's not actually, you know, leftist organizations and in a certain sense some organizations have become so disdainful of people's faith it is well just blatantly stupid in my opinion to just be disdainful of something that matters so much to people because well uh, you know they're all manipulated or something like that this is absolutely the wrong strategy but it's also not the correct strategy to do some of the things that like Dilma did you know like praising the yeah, universal church and the amount like going to their um going like to like their their temple and saying things about you know uh, this nation that's like uh, ruled by God and like really hurting this relationship about like trying to make things secular and we know like when it comes particularly uh, to like women and LGBTQ rights and, and indigenous rights this matters a lot right so the fact that abortion rights like they, do, they don't go forward in Brazil is primarily due to this influence from these fundamentalist institutions. Yeah, I, I would just add that I, it, it's clear that evangelicals are not going anywhere. If anything, they're growing in importance. And the left needs to contest these people. They need to try to you know, convince them. And as Sabrina said, like this is obvious. I mean, part of the reason the PT grew as quickly as it did in the early years was that it was deeply rooted in these um, ecclesiastical-based communities, which was the Catholic, you know, the Progressive Catholic Church being in these neighborhoods doing the same role that a lot of these evangelical churches are doing now. And so, you know, it's easy to see in hindsight, but to the extent that the PT and the Progressive Catholic Church fade from those positions, there's, yeah, a power vacuum, and it's not, it shouldn't surprise us that that can be, this faith can be operationalized. And I don't even, I don't even mean necessarily, you know, nefariously, but that people are going to vote their faith. But the, the downside, just to add to the list Sabrina just gave us, too, is the fact that by chasing evangelical votes, you have to be careful about not uh, appearing to ratify violence, for example, against you know Afro-Brazilian religions, against you know LGBTQ people. There's been an alarming rise uh, of, of that in, in Brazil. Not all of it attributed to you know evangelicals, obviously, but some of it. Yes. So I think, you know, there needs to be a way to thread this needle. And as I argued in the, as I pointed out in the piece for Jack in Brazil that Sabrina invited me to write about this, um, it's not, we, the left shouldn't be fatalistic about this either. I mean, the idea that the right in Brazil is so dominant among evangelicals is relatively recent. Lula won a majority. Dilma won, you know, it was about split, 
So it's been declining, yes, uh, support among, for the PT among evangelicals generally. And I mean evangelicals, all denominations, Protestant denominations. But it's, you know, it's not a fait accompli, right? There, there is still, it's a political ground that needs to be contested. On to the important and lethal bullet constituency. First, how did armed agents of the state become not just a tool of reactionary political actors, but a core constituency for reaction in and of themselves? And how then does that armed constituency relate to this broader resonance of law and order politics, of penal populism? that is such a thing across Brazilian society? Okay, so um, here we need to understand like uh, three elements, right? Like penal populism, which you just mentioned, uh, militias and the military, right? So like uh, the military is absolutely involved within the Bolsonaro government. It's for like a civilian government, it is way, way too involved. Uh, The military has to go back to just doing, you know, military work. And that's not what it's doing right now. It's been running the show in like, like in the, in the healthcare ministry and like in many other areas of the government. So this is one of the issues here. And this has also caused some conflicts within military ranks. So it's not, it's not that simple, right? So like you have like a, a military VP and the, that military VP does not agree with a lot of other generals that are within, uh, within the military. So there, there are tensions there. There's the a- aspect of we're talking about a country with high rates of you know, crime and also high rates of impunity. So people uh, don't really believe that crimes will be solved. And we have that at the same time that we have like one of the largest incarcerated populations in the world. Uh, which shows like how how this process is uh, absolutely absurd. But in that sense, the the police, especially the military police, is very much embedded into this like Bolsonarista way of thinking and the ideology of power. And you know, a good criminal is a, is a dead criminal. So being able to express violence, being very uh, free to do so. This is part of this institution, and with Bolsonaro in power, it became, um, it was already something quite real. Like, like you could even argue that for, like, for some people in the favelas of Brazil, it didn't change that much. Because, you know, there were, there were, slaughter, like, there were slaughters before Bolsonaro, and now with Bolsonaro. So you could even argue that. Uh, but we know that as part of this imaginary of Bolsonarismo, like having the military police, be protected, or uh, we have had displays of, you know, like, you know, police acting in very weird ways to, you know, ah, okay, so this person said something bad about the president on Twitter, so we're just going to knock on their door and we're going to arrest them. So that we have like this like volunteer police action that's uh, quite odd too. And when you put all these things together, that gets into the case of the militias and the Bolsonaro family is connected to militias. And we have enough evidence of this. We know this connects to the murder of city councilor, a black feminist, uh, Marielle Franco. And this is still a question that we're asking, like who actually um, is really behind um, her, assass- uh, her assassination. And when we're talking about militias here, this is something that's so embedded that in some parts of the country, they decide who runs as a candidate and who can't run. They decide, you know, who can go towards one street and rather than another street. So there's a lot of control. It's like this really like another level of power. And it is really um, eroding 
another level of like democracy in Brazil. That's not just like the institutional crisis of democracy. Because even if we get it the Bolsonaro, militias are so powerful in parts of the country that this is a much harder problem to, uh, to tackle. Uh, we should probably begin uh, like stopping these charades. There is the war on drugs. That, that's probably like a, a good, a good um, first step here. There's a lot of ways to go, a lot of ways to go in here. And this, this will lead us to circle back to the point of corruption, right? Like these militias are very much connected to different schemes of corruption throughout the country. Yeah, this is one area where I do think Bolsonaro has innovated in Brazilian politics. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's like an incompetent mediocrity. But I, but I think on, on this question, I think there's something different here. And that is his coming up in politics um, as a kind of military everyman. Right. He first runs for city council in the late 80s, very much on the issue of remuneration for public security forces that cops. Right. Are, they do this thankless task and they get paid very little. They put their lives on the line and these politicians don't appreciate that. They don't respect them. And he uh, very quickly becomes among this segment, very popular, a very outspoken uh, spokesman. What's interesting is that uh, even at the time, high ranking members of the military, former President Ernesto Geisel, for example, specifically says Bolsonaro is bad for the military. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact that he's this sort of everyman. And over the course of his long time in Congress as well, he was this gadfly and eventually embraced more generic, more general right-wing causes, but without ever losing, I would argue, that core of the you know military police guy on the front lines who has to deal with the reality of law and order, of, of what that entails, of violence and you know, that he's feel, he feels constrained by, by, you know, human rights and all of that. And so I think Bolsonaro really incarnates that sense of like, if you're on the front lines of violence in the public imagination, what that entails, you know, yeah, fuck it. Like, you got to put a bullet in somebody's head. You got to just lay them down and, and kill them. And I think the fusing of that with electoral politics is something that Bolsonaro over his long career has really, you know, I hate the term, but like a political entrepreneur who's really been able to capitalize on that. And now there, there are several others, but his relationship with the militias, the militias that the Sabrina just mentioned too, like this is something that was known to people who follow Rio politics, uh, the state of the state of Rio, leftists and progressives, and everyone was saying this in 2018. It was known that, you know, and I, I argued this like friends and family, like, okay, even if you concede corruption, whatever the PT, there are things worse, I would argue. I think the militias of Rio are very simply, it's, 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 it's a much worse thing to have at the very top. And that's what we have. Um, and so to your question about like, you know, public security as a, as a political force, public security agents as, as a political force, Bolsonaro and his administration in a way are marrying these two different things. One is the kind of self-indulgent and self-reverential narrative of the dictatorship that you know, this kind of intervention is necessary, that democracy leads to bad things, messy things, you need a firm hand, but also this more almost like grassroots security mentality of the, the cop on the corner. You know? And I think that's Bolsonaro. It's the, the guy who's on the corner, you know, not the top general, not the brass. He's like this in a, the, the everyman. And I think that's never really left him. And it's why he has such loyalty, scary loyalty among rank and file members of, of the security forces. September 7th, there were all kinds of reports of colonels and things like that urging their battalions of military police to go take to the streets to support him. 
so, you know, I agree with Sabrina. If 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 there's one part of this uh, coalition we're talking about that is really worrying for the survival of democracy, I think it's it's these people. That makes me wonder, does Bolsonarismo, is it a reemergence of the ideology and politics of the dictatorship, or is it maybe more the product of the contradictions that were never reconciled by democratization? And then either way, why is it that Brazil seems to be dealing with this past in a way entirely opposite? That's the million dollar question right there, <laughs> because um, it does seem like, like like we're going around in circles, right? I, I think part of this is the, the way that we actually came out of the dictatorship was not about a huge victory from like by the democratic movements in Brazil. It was about making agreements, right? So like, let, let's agree on this, on that. And then the military, the military was going through like an economic crisis and they were dealing with a lot of challenges at the time. So it was kind of like, it was advantageous for the military to cut some deals as well. And one of the reasons that they did that was to make sure that they wouldn't really be held responsible for a lot of the things that they did under dictatorship. And that has an impact, not just in terms of investigations and getting people arrested, but how does that affect the memory of people in the country? Because then we get into that distinction between memory and history. And we get these people nowadays saying, well, the dictatorship wasn't so bad because nothing happened to me. So if nothing happened to me, then it was a right. So like things get really blended in that sense. And that was very advantageous for the military to continue to be in power. Even though we got like this new constitution, like from 1988 onwards, this constitution is still one that allows the military a lot of power because the, the dictatorship is not something that was like properly processed by Brazilian society. And now that we look into like a younger generation and the way that they're trying to intervene into the educational system, you know, making sure that you can't teach certain things or doing this historical revisionism and like calling it like the movement of 1964 or the revolution of 1964, this is really dangerous because it will lead people to think that once we have the military in, then we don't have corruption. And this is something that we hear all the time that, well, at least during the military dictatorship, we weren't facing corruption. And then all the historians doing work, you know, uncovering all different levels of corruption there, you know, they just cry when they, when they hear something like this. Our truth and reconciliation process was very uh, flawed. And it's still part of the problem. Like we, we had like a, a Comissão da Verdade, so we had a commission for this. But I have this feeling that it really didn't reach uh, society the way they should have. So, so much that, you know, every time, you know, between like uh, uh, March 31st and April 1st, one of our jobs every year is to be like, yes, this happened, the dictatorship was real, and we need to talk about children uh, who were tortured, and we need to talk about disappearances, and all of these things. And we talk about it, and it's still hard to get certain people to believe in it. Because, well, I, I, I one of the reasons actually is like, the traditional media, it still does not care about this, you know, making sure. Partly because, you know, uh, some of them, they're also to blame. So like Global, like one of the major networks, um, they were very complicit with, with the process of the military dictatorship. So we have this right there. And in another sense, uh, <laughs> when we get to what's happening right now, 
I also think that we're having a little bit of trouble with the concept of dictatorship just being throwing, like, thrown around all the time. So after the coup against Juma Rousseff, people started saying, like, especially people like within the PT base, that we're living in under dictatorship now under Tamer. And that kind of empties um, the meaning of this, and it's very depoliticizing in a way, and then it makes it it makes it harder for us to actually go back and like assert this was this was dictatorship. This is a crisis of democracy. This is something that we absolutely need to prevent from getting worse. But it's not quite the same. So I'm very worried when people like in the left claim that we're living under a dictatorship in Brazil right now. And sometimes they use as examples things that are absolutely terrible, but there were also things that were absolutely terrible under Lula and Dilma. So, like, when we're talking about, you know, these huge murders and, uh, you know, by the police and things like that, or violence against indigenous communities, they're getting worse. It's getting worse. But this was also a reality just a couple of years ago. So it's not like the country was amazing and then it just, like, started, like, uh, going, like, to shit, basically, right? So this is a process and... um, I think in the left, we we have a lot of responsibility in the way that we have handled this. And we need to kind of reinvent the way that we talk about, you know, this memory of dictatorships in Brazil. We're talking about a country that we only had five elected presidents actually finish their terms. This is really worrisome, right? Yeah, I agree with completely with Sabrina about the terminology, right? I, I don't think it's helpful to call what we're experiencing in Brazil a dictatorship. Uh, but I do think it's 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 important to think about the terms we use. Uh, to her point, like just as an example, my dad casually he'll call what happened in '64 a revolution, the revolution, and I go, no, come on, golpe, hey, whatever, whatever, as if like yeah, you know, he doesn't care that much. But I think the unspoken, the the, the implicit instinct, right, to call it one thing or another, is something that we have to think about. Why, you know, why is that the one that's up to, at the tip of your tongue, uh, and not this other term? Uh, but to go, you asked a question about whether Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo represents a kind of continuity with the dictatorship. I would argue that it represents a continuity with a, with a part of it. And, you know, not to give the dictatorship too much you know, credit, obviously, but I do think it had a, a vision and an, and an argument about Brazil's place in the world uh, that I don't think Bolsonaro really cares about. I think the, the continuity, the line that we might be able to trace with Bolsonaro is a phenomenon that occurs a little bit later in the military regime, uh, represented most prominently by the Squadron da Morte, which was this kind of roving gang of... Death squad. Yeah, death squad. A roving gang of proto-militia types who, among other things, represented this, this view within security forces that towards the end of the regime, that is the period when Bolsonaro himself is in the military, that the government is getting soft, that the regime is getting soft. That the generals themselves, you know, in talking about a return to democracy, are letting their guard down. And in doing so, they're supposedly encouraging criminality, theft, impunity, corruption. That what's needed is this vigilance at the ground level, represented by these death squads, and more recently by the militias. Up until very recently, Bolsonaro and his family were praising the militias as exactly that force, that force on the ground that is holding the line, as it were, in the face of this large, faceless state riven by corruption, impunity, blah, 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 blah. So that, I think, is, is, is the connection. Is this part of the military and security forces and dictatorship who worried that the regime was not lethal enough, that it wasn't doing enough 
to combat, again, these boogeymen, right? Corruption, leftism. And so I think that's the that's the line I would draw between Bolsonaro and the regime. Yeah, Andre, you and Benjamin Fogel wrote in dissent, quote, Bolsonarismo represents an effort to undermine not just the recent policies of the PT, but the moderately redistributive and inclusive state haltingly constructed in Brazil over the course of the past century. This state has at various times been authoritarian and exclusionary, particularly to the rural poor and inhabitants of the periphery of Brazil's major cities. But it was based on the extension of a limited form of social citizenship to Brazil's working class. In almost every government since 1930, including the military dictatorship of 1964 to 1985, has sought to build upon this legacy. So it's complicated what you're saying is going on here, that there's both this return to the logic and symbolism of the dictatorship, while also the dictatorship being a part of a kind of broader history of the of Brazilian state and society that Bolsonaro is trying to enact a more complete rupture with. Right. To give an ex- a very concrete example, after the coup happens, Roberto Campos, who is not the finance minister, but the minister of planning, who's put in charge of the, the ideological orientation of the regime, as it were, he gives this speech in which he recognizes, obviously within a very constrained context, but he recognizes the need for a positive agenda for the regime. He says, yeah, reform agraria, grand reform, we need to do it. Housing reform, we need to do it. Obviously not at all in the terms that the Communist Party or that uh, João Goulart, the deposed president, was talking about, but a sense that like these are problems that need to be solved. It's just that we, the military, are the ones to solve them. I think Bolsonaro represents a, a generation and a, a segment of the military that says, fuck all of that. We don't want to do any of that, right? That none of that is, is, uh, is important to us. Yeah, so I think that's one concrete example, which is not, I should say, not to praise the regime in any way, of course, but that there was at least a kind of lip service, a recognition that that, that these are important issues to talk about, to be seen to be handling. Yeah, in the the dictatorship, there was some sort of like developmentalist project, right? That that was part of And even so, because they needed to accomplish certain things to make sure that they would deliver uh, to, you know, parts of the capitalist class. So it's about building roads and and hydro dams and like putting infrastructure into place. So like developmentalism was present there, whereas under Bolsonaro is very much about let's sell everything, like everything that we have here. So I guess... Perhaps what we can like what sets the tone here is like the neoliberal policies that that we have seen with Paulo Guedes and they're quite behind the coup against Juma Rousseff in the first place. That's right. And in fact, this is one of the things I, I grapple with in my dissertation is like this idea of who is a nationalist. At what point does the regime consider themselves you know, nationalistic? There's a point in the mid 70s when there is a tension between the regime and the Carter administration in which the Congress in Brazil, which is dominated by Arena, which is the, the pro-military regime party, commissions a, an inquiry into multinational corporations, arguing that you know, they have this nefarious designs on Brazil. That all of a sudden, they're making the argument that it's international capital under the Carter administration. That's the problem. And so just to note the, the sort of elasticity of the terms here in a way that I think is much cruder I think under Paulo Guedes and and Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro used the tiny social liberal party, or PSL, as his vehicle to win office in 2018. Has he built anything like a party machine around his presidency since? 
Well, he hasn't been able to, to do so. This is actually one of the major defeats of Bolsonaro, right? So after uh, he breaks with PSL, he's kind of homeless, right? And he needs to figure out how to, how to build a party and they try to do so. And it's a disaster. They can't get enough signatures to actually um, make it the home of Bolsonaristas. So right now he's actually looking. <laughs> he's looking for a party to run from and that's that's leading into other conflicts within the, the right in Brazil, right? Because parties um, may have a sense, like some people in the parties don't want to be associated with Bolsonaro. They want to have their own projects or their friend that Bolsonaro might use the party as a platform and implode it. So when Bolsonaro, um, Bolsonaro had been like to other parties before, and this is actually quite common in Brazilian politics, particularly of like from the center to the right, you know, people just jump uh, from parties uh, here and there. But even in the in the center left, you find the same problem in the radical left too. Like, but but then it's more of a problem of fragmentation. It's a, it's a little bit more complicated. But in the sense that we have over thirty viable parties in Brazil to run from today, it's a it's a really big um, pluriparty system. And Bolsonaro does have options, but like. He's like the, the thing with the PL right now, like the, the discussions to, to try to, to become affiliated, to be able to run from there, that, that's also leading to conflict. So I think this is like one of the major defeats. He hasn't been able to build a party machine. This is good for us um, because if he had been able to do so, he'd have a lot more resources. But it's also a reflection of the way that the party system in Brazil works in the way that you can just kind of rent a party if you're, if you're able to convince the right people within it. Yeah, I think this 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 tells us a few things. One, there are there are lots of parties in Brazil, which doesn't mean it's easy to start one from scratch. I think Marina Silva discovered that when she, when she was trying to set up her own party uh, in 2014, uh, which she didn't manage to do in time. And then Bolsonaro now with Aliança Brasil, Aliança pelo Brasil, he's trying to set up this party. Um, and so this, this, I think, answer ties up a few of the things that you asked uh, to begin with. One, it's a sign of hope, I think, and I, may, I, I you know, optimistically, of his weakness. That at the end of the day, he, he can't either he lack of focus or lack of competence to see through the complicated process of creating one's own party. He's the president. He should have been able to, uh, you know, adhere people to him. But it gets to the second question, second point, which you raised earlier his sons apparently talks with the Partido Liberal uh, fell apart because he insisted, Bolsonaro insisted that his son be put in charge of the Sao Paulo uh, office of this party. And the head of the party said on, on the record that he told the president, look, you may be the president, but the person in charge of my party is me. So Bolsonaro wants deference from a party. And if you own one of these, if you're the head of one of these little parties, you know, you have a lot to gain just by being there. So he's struggling. This is the struggle he's having, which is to convince people that he's worth it, that it's worth having him run for, for, for office next year. And of course, the reason this is urgent is that you need a party. You need to be affiliated with the party to run for office. So right now he does not have a party. Uh, and that, you know, I, I think he will land somewhere. But that's why it's, it's kind of an urgent question. You need a party to be able to run for office. And in another important piece of context here is that traditionally in Brazil, but traditionally in Brazil, no party, including the party holding the presidency, ever holds anything close to a legislative majority. 
Yeah, that, that's <laughs> actually one of the reasons why the PT claims you have to govern with agribusiness and with the banks and the construction companies because we don't have any other option, right? So, well, part of the reason is like if you have over 30 par parties, not, not, not all of them make it, make it into Congress, right? So uh, you are going to have to make alliances, but you can make it like with blocks or like more ideologically aligned, or you could just try to play the game with all the parties there. And that kind of has been normalized. They, they just play it along. And that's why in Brazil, there's this weird concept, which is called Centrão. So like the big center, which is actually not center at all. It's like mostly right-wing uh, parties and, and representatives that they are so tied together in their own cooperativist interests that you can kind of just like bring them along and like if you get the support of Centrão, then you can like pass certain bills and things like that. So everyone, like every president is always trying to court uh, Centrão. And Centrão, of course, was quite responsible for the coup against Dilma. I, I, I agree with Sabrina that it doesn't make sense to think of Centrão in ideological terms. I always think of it almost in architectural terms. Like they, they you know, they occupy this important position that you can't dislodge. It's center of gravity. It's just like, let's put astrophysics there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like they kind of just grab everything, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so one kind of simplistic argument, but one that maybe is, is helpful just to put on the table, is this idea that the challenge of governing Brazil is that you have a very strong president, but then this plethora of parties, uh, more like a parliamentary system. So unlike, uh, you know, the U.S. example, where, you know, the president's Democrat, he's got Democrats who if not in the majority, are reasonably close to a majority. Here you have a strong president who has to try to cobble together majorities on, on various different positions. This is why some have argued that the Mesalon scandal, which was the, the PTs you know, purportedly paying members of Congress to vote a certain way, in exchange for the PT getting to name its own ministers to the ministries, as opposed to, you know, give it because usually what you do is you make these deals with little parties. This party here will get the Ministry of Cities. You'll get the Ministry of Fishing. You'll get the Ministry of whatever. Um, the thinking was, look, just we'll pay you. Stay where you are in Congress, but we get to name the ministers. So I've heard arguments that actually the minister alone was a little bit, was at least more Republican because at least the party that was elected, the PT, is governing in its cabinet the way that it wants to rather than, you know, giving, using it as a bargaining chip. But in any case, that's the challenge that Lula and anyone who is serious about governing um, faces. On the Brazilian left, there's not just the PT, there's the Socialism and Liberty Party, or PSOL, and it's become increasingly prominent. Their candidate for mayor of Sao Paulo in 2020, Guillermo Bulos, made it to the runoff against the conservative mayor from the PSDB, or Party of Brazilian Social Democracy, the, conserv the main old-line conservative party. The PSDB ended up winning. But was this a significant moment for the left, that it was a PSOL candidate going up against the PSDB rather than a PT candidate, and that the PSDB candidate had Lula's support. Have the Bolsonaro years changed the balance of power on the left? There's like the two major cities and capitals that people pay attention to, like it's Rio and Sao Paulo, right? And uh, PSOL had had a good experience, like as a runner-up for the mayoral race in Rio before with Marcelo Freixo, who's no longer in PSOL. But for Sao Paulo, it's usually this like PT versus PSDB struggle. And the fact that like, Guilherme Bolos actually, he got quite close. Like for a while, a lot of people thought that maybe 
he would grab and he would win the mayoral race. And now um, his plans are to run for governor of the state of Sao Paulo. But that doesn't come easy. So like, uh, you know, they're like, uh, like Frei Beto wrote this op-ed, like trying to like urge Lula to support Bolos and to have more like leftist unity because the Workers' Party has a really hard time giving up some of the spaces and say, you know, okay, we're not going to run our candidates here. We're going to let someone else run it, which is what shows some of the conflicts for PSOL. Because PSOL is, um, it's, it's a small party. It's, it's a, only like a tenth of the size of the PT in terms of membership. Uh, like the PT really is like one of the biggest parties in Brazil. But the PSOL has become quite prominent because, you know, it has like strong voices within parliament. For like it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's small, but, you know, they, they do uh, grab some attention. And they're also suffering from anti-PTismo, anti-leftism, anti-communism and things like that. So... And PSOL tried to support, uh, you know, like Free Lula and to support other important campaigns for the PT. Perhaps um, the impression was that they would get more support from the PT um, to, to run their own candidates in certain places. And so far, that doesn't seem to be the case. Like, there's a lot of some conversations going on, like, like Lula, if he's not going to uh, give support to Bolos for governor, maybe for senator, but no, not really for senator, only for, if it's for federal Congress, uh, you know, like as a, as a um, as deputy. So there's a lot of conflicts between the PSOL and the PT. The, the PSOL still operates a little bit under the shadows of the PT. And that's obviously complicated for PSOL. PSOL wants to remain um, as uh, a radical left party. Because then we would have to criticize the PT on a lot of things, but it can also, also it's not big enough to isolate itself. So um, this is one of the conflicts, but it has, <laughs> this goes into like a much larger conversation about how fragmented the left in Brazil is, the contradictions within each party. Obviously, when we're talking about the Workers' Party, the PT, and we're talking about the Social Socialism and Freedom Party, the PSOL, we're talking about parties of tendencies. So there are many different organizations within these parties and they have different ideas and they fight over these ideas during their own internal Congress, but also in everyday politics as well. And within the PSOL, there are parts of the party who that believe that the party is really just, you know, playing along with the PT and it should be more forceful and other parts uh, that think that, well, we need to tag along because it's, it's the only option we have. And yeah, that, that becomes quite complicated, but perhaps like good news for PSOL is that it really grew in membership in the past year. So it is a party that's attracting more people, whether this will really translate in major electoral gains, we're not sure because, you know, that it is a party that doesn't have the same level of infrastructure. And this is also a party that's really torn between electoral pursuits and base building, movement building, and the other jobs that, that a radical left party needs to have if it has any, any actual plans to you know, promote a different project for society. And obviously, uh, uh, another conflict right now within the PSOL is whether they're going to run their own candidate or not. Uh, so like in the first round of the elections, if they're going to have a candidate and not support Lula right away, or support Lula right away. If they do support Lula right away, it's going to be the first time that PSOL doesn't run its own candidate in the first round. And uh, some critics within the party, they think that, well, we need to run our own candidate because it's the way that we're going to show our platform. 
I don't think this is the only way that you show your platform. Like we've seen like campaigns in the US, right? Like when we're talking about the primaries and things like that, there are other ways of showcasing what the project the PSOL has for Brazil is like without having to be in the presidential debates. Uh, but that's a choice that's like more complicated to make and it's definitely leading to, to conflicts right now. Andre? Another, another factor shaping these considerations as well is the fact that Congress passed a law, I can't remember when, a few, a few years ago, that's uh, designed to try to limit the number of parties. So the Clausula de Bahia, that parties need to demonstrate a certain viability in, in elections. And this has caused some reshuffling among prominent you know, left figures like Flavio Giano, for example, the governor of Maranhão, who uh, left the PS, uh, left the PCdoB, the Brazilian, the Communist Party, Communist Party of Brazil, to join the center, center left uh, PSB. And Marcelo Freixo as well, yeah. As well. You know, to try to join a party that is not a radical left party by any means, but that they argue is better positioned uh, to make negotiations and eventually, eventually show their viability and win. Uh, because I think there's a frustration with some of these top, you know, figures of of the PSOL in particular to want to win. I think some of them are tired of being uh, a radical party. I, I I think I don't know, but I think Freixo, you know, realizes that he he's had success several times as mayor, but wants to get over that hump, right? And the PSOL he has he had said publicly was limiting some of those moves that he could make. And I'm reminded of something Lula once said uh, about this because you know Lula has been criticized by the PSOL. In fact, the PSOL was born of, as, as a left-wing dissident of the Workers' Party, criticizing a lot of the negotiations and deals he's made with some unsavory characters. And Lula, you know, he said this once in an interview with Fernando Novaes. He, he said, uh, look, I love the PSOL. They're great. I want them to win a major city or a major state and govern because I want to see them swim, learn how to swim. And so, you know, the argument Lula is making there is that yeah, you can talk a radical left, you know, line, but you're going to hit a ceiling. And, you know, whether that's a false choice, a false dichotomy is one that that the that the, the, the in particular is navigating. To Bolos, you know, who's running for governor in Sao Paulo, he's running into a, a, a I think a direct uh, collision course with Haddad. Haddad is Fernando Haddad who ran for the presidential uh, presidency in 2018 in Lula's stead is basically an open campaign right now for governor. Uh, you can't technically be open campaign, but social media, he's uh, traveling the state. So what's going to happen there? I worry that that could be a real fight between the PT's candidate and Pessoal. Bolos argues that he surprised expectations uh, in Sao Paulo for mayor. He's earned the right to contest the state as the left candidate. So, you know, this gets into a lot of inside baseball be between, uh, between the parties, but it's this larger question of, is there a ceiling after which you can't cross as a radical left party? The PT would argue that its experience in power shows that you need to make these concessions. And it seems like certain figures, Freixo, I think Gino, are not completely getting on that train, but I think they're they're showing a willingness to negotiate for the name of governability and the name of winning that much of the PSOL still resists. Well, Andre Palerini and Sabrina Fernandez, thanks both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Andre Pagliarini is a professor of history at Hampton Sydney College and is preparing a book manuscript on Brazilian nationalism in the 20th century. He has written frequently about Brazil for The New Republic, Jacobin, and The Guardian. 
Sabrina Fernandez is a Brazilian sociologist and a postdoctoral fellow with the IRGAC at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. She is a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine and produces the political education project Tese Onse. I'll link to Tese Onse's YouTube page in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after looking into what conditions made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.